It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is a real treat. My next guest, if you're not familiar with him, you are in for a treat because you are about to be exposed to someone who is, in my view, a pretty extraordinary individual. This is someone that was born with a great deal of advantage and didn't necessarily have to do the same kind of sacrificing that a lot of other people have to do because of the lot in life in which he was born. And yet he chose to dedicate the bulk of his adult life to public service, so much so that he volunteered to go to war as a Marine and an intelligence officer. He served five tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, if that wasn't impressive enough, he's also dedicated the bulk of his peacetime life to furthering the cause of intellectual understanding. He is a best-selling author and a terrific writer. His work has appeared in some of the best-known publications in the world, quite literally. He's a contributing writer for The Atlantic these days, where he writes about current events and a lot of other issues, and a best-selling author who's written many books. His latest book is a novel which has an absolutely intriguing premise. It's called Halcyon. Very pleased to welcome back to the program, Elliot Ackerman. Elliot, it's been a long time. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Uh, thanks a lot for having me, Frank, and uh, thanks for that very kind introduction. Well, it has the added virtue of uh, of being true. I, I first, you you know so much about so many different areas that the struggle with interviewing somebody like you is what you begin with. But let me begin with what the buzz of the moment is. The film Oppenheimer is anything but a bomb. It has grossed over a hundred million dollars. It's done just tremendous box office numbers. It's getting a great deal of critical acclaim. It's reigniting all sorts of historical and ethical debates about the dropping of the atomic bomb. I know you have uh, some pretty strong views on uh, on World War II and some pretty informed views of the history of World War II. Give me your take on Oppenheimer as a film and the events depicted in Oppenheimer as a matter of history. Um, well, I think I think you know Christopher Nolan, the the director of Oppenheimer, you know, is really one of the the finest sort of auteur directors working today. You know, he wrote the film, he directed the film. Uh, it's based off of a Pulitzer Prize winning biography, American Prometheus, and I would encourage anyone listening to uh, go out and see the film. Um, I will tell you just from an artistic standpoint, my you know my favorite Nolan films are. Uh, the, his Batman, The Dark Knight, right, same. Um, and, and, and and Dunkirk. I think Dunkirk is really a masterpiece. Um, uh, but Oppenheimer is, is is excellent, and I think it is. Um, listen, it's doing really well uh, because it uh, is hitting the zeitgeist uh, at, at, a, at, a, at just the right moment. And I think that the um, the unspoken analog that exists 
uh, with Oppenheimer and, and the current moment is um, is kind of artificial intelligence. And we're also living in a what seems like an increasingly fraught time. You know, it seems as though in recent years we've transitioned to what for so long has felt like, at least in Cold War terms, a post-war moment and that we were no longer living with, you know, the Soviet threat. So for so long, it was sort of this post-war moment, this idea that we were living kind of at the end of history. And that all seems to be over. And now, in some ways, um, you know, many people are saying we live maybe in a, in a pre-war moment uh, where we're sort of all awaiting or at least living through uh, a, a series of years where there's like pretty significant global realignments going on. Um, so I think that's why Oppenheimer, is, I, I believe, is kind of... Uh, touching a nerve so it's, it's it's a great film and it obviously you know deals with um uh history that uh is familiar to much of us you know which is the ending of the second world war the development of the, the first nuclear weapon um and the decision to drop it you, you mentioned artificial intelligence i've covered a lot of the things going on with ai on this program from an artistic perspective from a political perspective with things like deep fakes from a uh, propaganda perspective and uh, certainly with uh, things like chat gpt and what the potential for disruption that that technology offers do you think there are some parallels between the development of the atomic bomb and what we're seeing with artificial intelligence these days? You know, for, I mean, like without getting too philosophical, absolutely. But I, I, I will, if you'll give me the liberty, get a little philosophical for a moment. And so much as, um, you know, the, 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 the title of the biography that Oppenheimer is based off of is American Prometheus. And, you know, Prometheus is the person who uh, stole fire from the gods. Um, and was punished for it. And, you know, the the discovery of uh, nuclear energy and our ability to create nuclear power and nuclear weapons in many ways was, as humans, uh, us going and discovering the core forces that created the universe, you know, the forces that power stars, these and our sun, these nuclear forces. So it was this idea that suddenly we, as mere mortals, with all of our failures and failings, um, now had the destructive capacity that for our entire history was godlike. And I think when we look at artificial intelligence, it's this similar idea. Have we created machines that can make us irrelevant and even potentially surpass us in many tasks? Um, and we're seeing that happen right now. So I think it raises a lot of these similar ethical debates um, as what happens when humans create things that only gods should be able to create. Uh, and, and that's the moment we're living through right now. Uh, talking with Elliot Ackerman, uh, his latest novel, which we're going to talk about in a moment, is called Halcyon, which uh, has an intriguing premise, which we're going to talk to you about in just uh, in just a, in just a bit. But uh, Elliot, you wrote in a piece in the Free Press about Hoppen Oppenheimer, in the turn of phrase that only someone like you can use. You said fears of nuclear war might feel as retro as the three-piece suits and fedoras worn by the. Op 
Oppenheimer cast. They're not. When nuclear powers are agitating for a reset of the international system, anything might happen. You point out the fact that our biggest adversaries on the global stage, China and Russia, have very large nuclear stockpiles, and Iran is working to get there as well. Uh, I heard a great deal from my father, who lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, about the constant fear that people were dealing with every day about the imminent threat of nuclear war. I'm sure you heard similar things from your father. Do you think we're we're in that same boat in terms of danger right now, but that the public maybe hasn't woken up to how how realistic and how dangerous the power of nuclear war might be right now? Yes, and um, I think that we are we are living at a time where the political conditions are more dangerous than they were in the Cold War um, at a time when public consciousness in nuclear war is far lower. I think the public consciousness is far lower because the, the last detonation of a nuclear weapon was obviously almost you know 80 years ago. So it seems like something that just cannot possibly happen. Um, and the behind nuclear warfare now is so much more complex and it's sort of just difficult for people who are living their lives to get their minds around it in a way that it wasn't when we sort of had one adversary. It was the Soviet Union and we lived in a binary world. Mm. You know, the world we're living in now from a nuclear perspective is, you know, is, is multipolar. I mean, there are many, many nations with a whole host of varied interests who are nuclear, who are armed with nuclear weapons. Also, the range and scope of nuclear weapons uh is much more varied than it was in the you know 40s, 50s, and early 60s when nuclear war was much more in our consciousness. And what I mean by that is, you know, you have everything from um, you know these hydrogen bombs that are sort of these Armageddon weapons that kill tens of millions of people on impact um, that really you know can end the entire world, but all the way down to sort of tactical nuclear weapons that are designed to be used on a battlefield and kill you know two or three thousand people, and what concerns me and you know and what we're seeing like for instance just this past year when you look at a place like ukraine is uh folks like vladimir putin openly agitating and saying that they would use a nuclear weapon on the battlefield in ukraine and it's less that that weapon would be used because it's the most necessarily efficacious tool to be deployed again you know if you were to blow up a tactical nuclear weapon in a you know in a wasteland like bakhmut in ukraine i mean you'd probably kill you know two or three thousand people on a military target but you'd be doing in a way that you know it's not going to cause the end of the world but what it would do is it would break the nuclear taboo that has existed uh in our international order since the end of the second world war no one has used a nuclear weapon and we've lived in a world where they where they are not used and when you break that taboo, now suddenly we're entering a world where they could be used again. You know, and that is very, very frightening, particularly when we're living in a war that, in a world that is far more complex with all the varied actors who hold nuclear weapons. It's much more difficult to have sort of simple systems of deterrence like mutually assured destruction when you're living in a world with, you know, 20, 30 nations that have nukes. That's certainly going to be one of the issues that comes up a great deal over the course of the next year with respect to the presidential race. I know you follow the national political landscape quite closely. I want to ask you about this movement that sort of uh, that sort of uh, catapulted to its next next stage in New Hampshire last week. That's the no labels movement. If people aren't familiar with this, this is an insurance policy by a group to run a 
centrist Democrat and a Republican if the nominees end up being Biden and Trump. They're saying this is an insurance policy because a lot of the public doesn't want Biden and Trump. They want an alternative. And they believe that if it is a Biden and Trump rematch, that it could actually set the stage for one of these centrist candidates to actually win. What is your view of the no labels movement? Do you think this is going anywhere? Um, well, I, I don't know if you connect these dots, Frank. Am I? But I, you know, I worked actually on a, on a precursor movement called American Select. That, that was uh, my next question. What, what you Select. saw as the parallels to it? Uh, exactly. That's um, why I asked the question. And what and what we were doing at American Select was trying to get uh, fifty state ballot access for an independent candidate and give any American the opportunity to vote for who that independent candidate would be. And our our model, candidly, was sort of a, you know, if you build it, they will come, meaning we believed that uh, if we got this 50 state ballot access, a whole host of kind of top tier political figures would show up and put their hat in the ring to compete for this ballot access because it was so valuable. Um, And we spoke to all sorts of candidates and we briefed them on what we were doing from both parties um, and at the end of the day, the reason Americans elected in a work was none of these candidates would kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, cross the picket line. None of them would leave their party and say, I'm going to run as an independent. They just as as lifelong Republicans and Democrats, they just couldn't bring themselves to break with party orthodoxy. So um, I going into that initiative, frankly, underestimated how strong uh, that tribalism was for those people who've, you know, built their political careers within parties. Um, and that was a lesson I took out of that experience. Um, you know, and I, I wish the, the people at, at No Labels well. And um, I, for one, think it's, you know, I'm sort of always on the on the side of choice in American politics. And I think right now, all the polling shows that the American people are not happy with the two choices if those choices are um, President Biden or Trump. Um, so I think the American people should have another choice. Um, and I certainly hope that uh, no labels could, can find um, uh, candidates who uh, we would be more excited about. Um, but I also understand just from, from my own experience, my own reading of politics, that that is probably a, a taller mountain to climb than most people uh, would intuitively think. I, it was more, I mean, it was a taller mountain to climb than I intuitively thought. So um, I'm wishing you well and I'm following closely. So there's been a number of stories comparing no labels to Americans elect and saying that uh, because Americans elect didn't pan out in 2012, that there's a good chance that no labels won't pan out this year. Now, no labels isn't necessarily disclosing their donors, and that's less to all sorts of conspiracy theories, mostly among Democrats, but not exclusively, about who's secretly behind this organization. Can you tell us if you're involved in, in uh, No Labels at all? Uh, I'm not. I'm not involved in No Labels. Um, I know many of the people who are who are involved there. Um, uh, so, you know, I've worked with some of them in the past, um, uh, but I personally am not involved with No Labels. You know, at the, at the end of the day, um, you know what they're doing. I think they're raising something like fifty or sixty million dollars, and you're like, that sounds like a lot of money. I mean, it is a lot of money, but when you look at a polit- the sure. political cycle around the presidency, where you know these these races are fifteen to twenty billion dollar races, mm. 
I mean, is really kind of a drop in the bucket. And at the end of the day, you know, if they put forward a candidate, the American people are going to have their say as to whether or not they want to vote for that candidate. Uh, last um, question. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. No, last question on the presidential race, because I, I want to pick your brain on a few other things and talk about Halcyon. Uh, you wrote a book about a year ago, or came out about a year ago, called The Fifth Act, America's End in Afghanistan. I mentioned the fact that you had served in Afghanistan. There was a lot of criticism of President Biden and his administration for the way the withdrawal from Afghanistan was was handled. Based on your experience firsthand and based on your research for this book, what do you think America's legacy in Afghanistan is? And do you think the criticism of the Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan was justified? Um, well, I think the the legacy of America in Afghanistan right now is 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 pretty fraught. Um, I think it's incredibly ironic when you look at the two major wars that were fought in the wake of the war on terror, that the, the good war, Afghanistan, is one that we clearly have lost, um, and that the bad war, uh, which was the war in Iraq, is one, you know, I would never go, I wouldn't go so far as to say we won the war in Iraq, but I also wouldn't go so far to say that we, that, uh, we lost it either. I think you've sort of seen a mixed result in Iraq. So I sort of think that's sort of just, an interesting side point um, with regards to Biden's uh, decision to withdraw. I, 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 uh, I'll kind of take that on two levels. The first, I would say the way the, the withdrawal was handled. Uh, and I was, and I write about this in the feedback was pretty, uh, found myself pretty involved with a number of evacuation efforts kind of in the, the, the weeks when Kabul was falling. So it felt like I sort of had a front row seat to it. And I've never seen anything like it in, in my life, just the, uh, the, the chaos and the complete lack of a plan. Um, I think that's what many Americans who maybe aren't connected to Afghanistan saw on their television sets. It was, it was pretty um, appalling. Um, I, you know, I have sympathy for what the Biden administration kind of their, their plan for the withdrawal. And I think their plan hinged entirely on what Nixon called a decent interval, meaning they believed that they would announce the withdrawal, the last U.S. troops would come out, and that Ashraf Ghani's government in Afghanistan would hold on for some point after that. Maybe be, they'd hold out for a couple of years, maybe six months. It didn't matter. But as long as there was a decent interval, President Biden could say, well, the collapse didn't happen on my watch. Um, but he had no plan for what would happen if there wasn't a decent interval and the government collapsed before all the U.S. troops got out. And when that happened, all the debacle you saw at the airport um, and all around the country was the result. So, um, you know, it's really a shame. And, uh, you know, the one thing that's going on right now, and I just bring to your your, your attention, is, you know, we did get 90,000 Afghans uh, and our allies to the United States and they actually are here on what's called a humanitarian parole uh, that lasts two years, and then they're subject to deportation. Mm. Um, so there, there is legislation in Congress right now called the Afghan Adjustment Act, which would adjust their immigration status to allow them to get on a pathway to get a green card, to be allowed to work in the United States and eventually become citizens. And this legislation would also make sure that they were vetted one more time. Um, in the last Congress, this legislation did not pass. Um, and it's up for a vote again uh, in this Congress. Uh, and if it doesn't pass this year, all our, all, all our allies who we did manage to get out um, will be subject to deportation back to their place of origin, which in this case is the Taliban-governed Afghanistan. So, 
You know, the war in Afghanistan, you know, we as Americans might have said that, you know, we're done with Afghanistan, but uh, I am not totally convinced that Afghanistan is done with us. Well, that's uh, very interesting. By the way, people are, I had no idea about that, and I follow this stuff pretty closely, so I appreciate you bringing that to our attention. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Elliot Ackerman. He is a Marine veteran who served in both Iraq and Afghanistan. He's a terrific writer. His latest book is Halcyon. Oh, I meant to ask you before we completely shut the door on discussion of the presidential race. Uh, Mitt Romney had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on Monday. Obviously, uh, Mitt Romney's not a fan of Donald Trump, and I think the feeling is more than mutual. And basically, he said to avoid a repeat of 2016, where the fractured anti-Trump field sort of divided the vote in the Republican primaries, the Republican donors should encourage the candidates that don't have a chance to win, that aren't named Donald Trump, to to get out of the race and they should coalesce behind one anti-Trump candidate. In my view, this sort of smacked of the elitism that sort of drove people crazy about Mitt Romney when he ran for president. I mean, who is Mitt Romney and who are these donors to kind of dictate to the Republican primary voters who their nominee should be? I'm curious what your reaction was to that op-ed. I'm guessing that you saw it. Yeah, I am. Um, I'm. I'm sympathetic to that view and share many of the of the the similar kind of emotions of who are you to tell me who to vote for. I'm sort of the same thing with no labels. When people within either parties agitate, say, oh, "This is so horrible." You know, my view as a voter is like, "Hey, why don't you let me decide right. who I want to vote for and not take options off the table for me?" Um, you know, that being said, just like when I when I just look uh, very pragmatically at what happened in 2016. Um, and what is, you know, might very well happen in 2024 is, yes, Mitt is right. Like, you know, it advantages if Donald Trump has what she seems to have is sort of very solid 30 percent of Republican primary voters. If in the early states, you know, there are Donald Trump and, you know, seven or eight other candidates, you know, candidates standing up on the stage who are the not Donald Trump candidates. You know, they're going to divide each other's votes and they'll kind of get picked off one at a time. At the end of the day, Trump will be left standing. And that's what happened in 2016. And it, you know, looks like it might happen again. So, um, listen, you know, we've seen this throughout the history of American politics as politicians who are running for president. Some are running because they really might become president and some are running because, you know, they are using it as a springboard to get some type of other job. And uh, and in and, and the process of the primary you know, deals are cut and you'll all get out if you assure me that I'm going to have X or Y position. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I will agree with you that sometimes Mitt Romney can be a little bit tone deaf in how he announces those intentions. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say the National Defense Authorization Act. If you listen to the Democrats on the House version that was passed. This is the worst thing ever. If you listen to the Republicans, this is the best thing ever and will be a giant savior to the military. The Senate is moving forward with its own version and presumably the House and the Senate are going to have to hash out the details in this. I realize there's a lot to this. It's almost a a trillion dollars in spending that we're talking about. There's all sorts of uh, policy implications across the board. Do you have any initial reaction to what you're you're seeing in the National Defense Authorization Act. Yeah, you know, listen, I mean, without kind of getting into um, 
all of the details and taking it apart. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, if you want to, I'm happy to talk about uh, certain portions of it. But I think, you know, the debate around the National Defense Authorization Act and like kind of the challenges we're having getting it through. Um, yeah, they're just again, they're they're indicative um, of how our domestic dysfunction can hamstring us internationally. Um, and I have for a long while now felt that, you know, really the greatest national security threat that the United States faces is our own domestic dysfunction. Um, we talk about China, Iran, uh, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, and, and we, as we should talk about those things. But if our own house is not in order, um, that is all meaningless. And our adversaries, you know, see our dysfunctional behaviors. So um, it doesn't mean people can't have spirited disagreements. But at the end of the day, um, you know, people need to play ball and get to get you know, decisions need to be made um, that are in the best interests of our country. So we can get to some type of a, a consensus soon um, and, you know, and, and get and get all of this passed. Do you see any way we talk about polarization in Washington? I think the polarization exists to some extent among the general public. Yeah, you have a situation where Republicans don't want to even live next door to Democrats. Democrats don't want to even consider going on a date with a Republican. It seems there's and this is borne out in a lot of polls. There's just a tremendous amount of division along cultural lines, along socioeconomic lines, along political lines. Do you see any way to heal those divisions, whether they're the divisions that you're referring to in the political realm or the divisions that might be broader that exist in the cultural realm? Um, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I don't I don't I don't see a plan to how we heal those divisions that I could articulate to you in a two to three minute response on this program right now um, in Canada. I think these divisions are incredibly complex um, they exist in America. They also exist in many other countries. They're born out of the way we uh, exist economically today. Um, trends in sort of the the, the division that exists uh, or the hollowing out that exists uh, in our society of the, of the middle class where you kind of have, you know, uh, you know, elites who are as wealthy as they've ever been and a deterioration of those who we used to call the middle class, where they're, you know, where, where their quality of life uh, has been stagnant or receding for years. I think it comes down to um, our media, uh, how we engage with one another, the atomization of society writ large, um, the fact that, uh, you know, you know, just communities have been eroding throughout this country. I think you just layer all of this uh, together, and you know, and, and that is what we are. Uh, observing uh, manifest itself in like the hyperpartisanship in our politics. So I think conver- you know just conversations like this and awareness of it certainly helps. But I don't think there's any one silver bullet um, to fix this. You've uh, written this new novel called Halcyon. You've written several books in the past, of both fiction and nonfiction. Uh, how do you make a determination about whether you're going to write fiction or whether you're going to be uh, writing nonfiction? Are you struck by some sort of inspiration that leads you down a, a, a chronicling path versus a creative path? Or how do you make that determination about whether you can write fiction or nonfiction? Yeah, I think, you know, stories are something we as human beings, we tell stories because they allow us to look at the incredibly complex world around us 
and just sort of simplify it into a narrative that we can follow. Um, so oftentimes, you know, I work as a journalist, so I write lots of nonfiction and, and, yeah, and I work as a novelist. And for me, it will be I will be chewing over something or observing something. And in the case of Halcyon, it's really just the, the, the social upheaval that has existed in American life over the past, you know, really intensely the last five years. Um, and it led me to asking lots of questions um, about uh, how these issues might play out in a, in a different America and how people are judged, how, how people who live in one time um, are judged by a certain set of standards. But when they're judged in a time that's not their own, they can be judged much more harshly. Um, and so I was, you know, I've been thinking of all of those issues and they didn't seem to lend themselves necessarily to a, a piece of journalism. And I think oftentimes when we talk about, you know, fraught issues like um, Me Too, Me Too or the BLM issue or all of these these societal issues, you know, it's very tough to talk about those in a way where people um, on one side or the other don't immediately tune you out. Um, so I wanted to tell a story about them um, that is, you know, in Halcyon, it's set in a alternate 2004 in which uh, Gore is president. And and, in this alternate 2004, many of the same social issues we've been dealing with in our own time uh, manifest. And so that is sort of one of the real currents of the book. I I love alternative history. Uh, One of my favorite television shows at the time that it was on was a a show called Sliders, where every week they'd go to a parallel world where something was different. In this world, the uh, Confederacy had won the Civil War. In this world, the uh, British had won the American Revolution. In this world, the uh, penicillin was never discovered. And it led to all sorts of different adventures for the people involved. So I'm always so intrigued with uh, with stuff like this. You go... um, a bit further than just putting it into the second term of the Gore presidency. There's a major scientific development that's at the heart of the book Halcyon. Uh, Tell people about this and how you use this as sort of a a tool for drama. Well, you know, obviously one of the great kind of crossing crossroads of American history in the dawn of uh, this century was when Bush won the presidency Uh, by about 500 votes in Florida. And, you know, I'm I'm 43 years old. So if you're kind of my generation, uh, you know, 9-11 happened right after that. And so one of the questions has been, well, you know, what if uh, Gore had been president instead of Bush? Um, But what a lot of people don't realize is that a significant crossroads wasn't just 9-11. But in 1999, one year before the 2000 presidential election, that was when we mapped the human genome for the first time. Mm. And that opened up these whole vistas of research into, you know, issues like cloning, for instance. And um, the Clinton administration uh, really leaned into that research. But when President Bush became, uh, when he won the election, became president, um, due to his religious beliefs, um, he shut down a lot of that research. And it was, uh, it, it proceeded at a sluggish pace for all eight years of his presidency. So in Halcyon, I imagine that Gore had won that election, that that research had proceeded at breakneck speed, and that by 2004, uh, government-backed scientists had, in effect, figured out a cure for death, and it started bringing to get bringing back to life um, select humans who had been cryogenically frozen, and that kind of is the device at the opening of the novel to introduce uh, the book's protagonist, a man named Robert Abelson, uh, who uh, is someone who was revered in his own time, a hero of the Second World War, um, uh, Atticus Lynch type. Uh, 
litigator who tried many great social cases, uh, and he's brought back to life uh, and is suddenly a man living in a time that is not his own, and he has to make his way in that time, and and many challenges uh, arise for him. I I think it's uh, really a fascinating premise, and uh, I don't read much fiction, but this sounds exactly up my alley, and uh, I have put it in my queue. I'm looking forward to to getting to it soon. Uh, Finally, Elliot Ackerman, let me end with this. We're way long here, but uh, I appreciate you being so generous with your time so late at night. There was a poll out that, uh, that showed that young people today are less patriotic on average than they were a generation ago and certainly two generations ago. I alluded to the fact that uh, you made the decision to enlist in the military and serve in the uh, in the Middle East. What was your reaction to seeing that polling data showing that uh, younger Americans are less patriotic today? Did that ring true to you? And why do you think that's the case? Um. It, it, it didn't necessarily surprise me, and I think the reason it's the case um, is, is, you know, is likely due to many of the issues we've been talking about this evening. You know, a rise in hyperpartisanship, um, a sense that your fellow Americans might not be your countrymen, but they might actually be, you know, your your enemy, um, and that we, you know, no longer of one another, I think, as, you know, as, as sort of fellow citizens, but as, you know, either members of, you know, your political team or people who are the other political team. So, um, so I think that's sort of the, the place that we're at right now in America. The thing that gives me optimism is we've, we've been here before and we've managed to pull ourselves out of it. Um, you know, one of the things I think as Americans is we often have a tendency to think of ourselves as very young people. And we are young people, culturally speaking. Um, But we are, in fact, a very old nation. And if you look at our system of government, you know, founded almost 250 years ago, um, if you look at all the other countries in the world, there are very, very few that can point to having had the same system of government for 250 years. And so what gives me hope is that um, as much sort of... uh, chaos and, uh, you know, that exists in American life, uh, we always are able to sort of get through these, get through these moments of change um, without sort of blowing ourselves up. So I think all of this sort of discontent, all of this energy from this discontent is something that we're sort of having to metabolize. And I, again, I'm optimistic that we will do it because we've always done it, even though if there's a lot of pain in between. And I think we're in one of those moments of upheaval. And because we are in a moment of upheaval, it doesn't surprise me that many younger Americans are questioning um, their patriotism. But as I said, I, I, this, this country has, has made it through greater challenges than this. And I think we will figure our way uh, through the current moment as well. Uh, Elliot Ackerman, we'll have to end it there. I hope uh, it's not so long before we speak again. Wishing you the best of luck with Halcyon. If people want to check it out, they can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It's H-A-L-Y-C-O-N. Thanks so much for the time this morning. Thank you much for having me. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.